today we are looking at the baptism of Jesus. So we just read that passage. I'm excited to talk about it. Uh, we have a, a baptismal here at Cornerstone. That's this back in the wall. Um, but many of us have different baptism stories. Maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you have been baptized. Well, I was baptized as a kid. I was about 10 years old. And I got baptized in my home church at the time, Mountain View Bible Fellowship in Estes Park, Colorado. And if I could take you back to that moment, so if I could magically transport you to the day I was baptized, you're now sitting on an orange pew in an oversized sanctuary, and you're, you're watching the baptism service, there's several things that you would have learned from the baptism. First, you would have learned that my home church is Baptist. You would have learned that sort of like this church, they have a large like dunking tank. Uh, and you would have learned uh, that, that they highly prioritized baptism. Like they really, really cared about baptism. And you would have seen this from the actual architecture of the sanctuary. Uh, because they had, they had a, a, a baptismal sort of like that, but then it was elevated 15 feet in the air. <laughs> and it was in the side of a rock wall. Uh, and the cross was in uh, the back of the baptismal, but it was like smack dab in the middle of this huge rock wall where everyone could see. So first, you would have seen that baptism is very important. Uh, second, you would have learned that we don't baptize pagan infants. You can kind of laugh at that. Uh, we, don't bat, we didn't baptize babies. Now, I, I don't believe that babies are pagans at all, but we as the church wouldn't do that. We believed, and we didn't have a, like a baptismal font where you sprinkle some water on a small child. Instead, we would wait until they were grown up, and then we would baptize them in the, the full kind of immersion tank. Uh, and then, third, you would have learned that I believed in Jesus uh, if you had been there that day because you had to profess faith in Christ. Now, at, at Emmanuel, at our parent church, many of the people, before they get baptized, they give like their testimony or their faith story. Uh, we did this at my home church as well. Many people would give their faith stories, but it was optional. And so I actually did not give my testimony the day I was baptized because I was too nervous. I just wanted to answer the questions and get dunked. I also wanted the presence afterwards. There was a little party. So these are the kinds of things that you would have learned if you were there for my baptism. Now, maybe some of you are thinking about getting baptized as well. Uh, today, we're looking at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. And I think just like you could have learned um, some things from being at my baptism, I think there are some truths uh, some key concepts in this passage that we need to really believe, we need, really need to understand before we get baptized so that we have a clear profession of faith. We can say, I really believe in Jesus. I'm getting baptized as a witness to this. Now, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 3, 13 through 17 again and talk about it. Donnie did a great job of reading it, but I'm going to read it again, uh, and then we're going to dive into what these uh, key truths are. I think there are three of them. 13 through 17, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. 
But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus teaches us three key truths. The first one is is simple to say, but it's incredibly like challenging to understand. And the first one is that God is a trinity, that we believe in a triune God. Now, this is a deep concept. This is not, not every single uh, world religion that believes this, but in Christianity, we do. And one of the places that we see this doctrine, so doctrine is just another way of saying belief, is in this passage when we step back and kind of take a look at the passage. See, here we see the Father, we see the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit. We see them all interacting together in a scripture verse. Now, the word trinity, maybe some of you have heard that from like television or a movie, um, but it actually comes from the Latin word trinitas or trinus, which is just a fancy way of saying threefold. So we believe in one God, but three persons. So wrap your mind around that for a second. We believe in one God, that Jesus is God, the Father is God, uh, the Holy Spirit is God, but they're each unique individuals. They're each their own person. Now, what is a person? A person has uh, his or her own mind, has his or her own will. We believe that the Trinity, that the persons of the Trinity have their own mind. They have their own will. And just like people sometimes have their individual jobs, their, their, what they do, the, the members of the Trinity, they also have things they do. So like Jesus, we usually attribute uh, salvation to him. A fancy word is redemption. Uh, for the Father, we often attribute uh, creation to him. But then we also attribute like the, the church, coming upon the church and, and filling the church to the role of the Holy Spirit. But each person of the Trinity, well, they're, they're involved in those other activities as well. And notice how we see all three in this verse. Jesus He's the son of God, and he's baptized. And then the father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son. And then the Holy Spirit comes down and rests on Jesus. It's a really beautiful moment where we see like this deep doctrine uh, play out in everyday life at a really unique moment. Now, I'm going to use a diagram. Sometimes diagrams or graphs can help you understand complicated things. So why don't we put up this diagram of the Trinity. We believe that uh, Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, that the Father is God, but the Holy Spirit is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. Wrap your mind around that one. It's going to take. The first time I learned about this, I think I was like six years old. My dad explained it to me. and It was just like, <laughs> I did not understand. 
And sometimes when we encounter really complicated theological concepts, we try to come up with simple ways of explaining it. And there are several simple ways that we use in kind of like modern uh, theology, modern thought to explain the Trinity that are all wrong. So I'm going to tell you them today. First, one of these is using the, the illustration that the Trinity is like an egg. That there's the, there's the white, there's the yolk, and there's the shell. So there's an egg, you know, there's three parts, one God, one egg. That is wrong because there are, they, are different, they are different things. So the shell is different than the egg white, white and the yolk. They are different, different chemical compositions. They are, it would be like saying there are three different gods there. So don't use that one. There's also the Trinity is like water. Because water is in the form of gas, you can do liquid, you can do solid. The problem with that one is they're all H2O. So it's really just one, one kind of chemical compound taking three different forms. So we don't believe that in one God that takes three different forms. We believe in one God and three persons. Oh, man. How about the Trinity? This one's St. Patrick's. The Trinity is like a three-leaf clover. Well, the problem with that one is that they're their own leaves, that they're too unique, they're too, they're too uh, distinct. So that's what we call a heresy. Heresy is wrong belief. So these are all the ways that you shouldn't explain it. How should you explain the Trinity? Well, you should just throw a graph up and look at the Scripture. Look at the Bible and see that The Father is God. The Son is God. People worship Jesus. He does not stop them. The Holy Spirit, we confess to him when we sin. Just say, look in the scriptures and say, they're each their own person, but they are indeed God. One of the reasons I believe in Christianity, one of the reasons I believe Christianity is true, is because of the doctrine of the Trinity. See, People wouldn't make this up. God, re- God reveals himself this way to us. This is far too of a complicated concept to come up with on our own. Usually when people try to uh, create like, uh, a God, they, they, they take themselves and they supersize themselves. And they say, God is just a really, really big, powerful me. And God says, on some ways, I'm like you, but in other ways, I am completely different. And we do find, uh, we do find the message of the Trinity in the Scripture. He's, he's all through there. Uh, when, we, when we look for a specific Bible verse that uses the word Trinity, we're never going to find it. You're just never going to find a word that uses Trinity. But you can find verses that talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One pastor I was listening to described it like this. We look for spotlight verses in the scriptures, but really the, kind of the belief of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is like a sunrise. It just it fills the pages of the scriptures. If you look back to Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it says the Spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. Even in the first two verses of the Bible, you can get this sense of this triune God. 
Now, no other world religion uh, but Christianity believes in a trinity, believes in the triune God. Islam believes that there is only one God. It's called strict monotheism. So there's this one God that's kind of one person. And the, the doctrine of the trinity is really an evil idea, idea according to Islam. Hinduism, I learned this this week, actually believes also in one God. Usually we attribute Hinduism to believing in a plethora of gods, like millions and millions of gods, but they actually believe in one God that takes on a, different, a ton of different uh, emanations. So he takes on a whole bunch of different forms. So then, again, one God. Buddhism does not really believe in a God, but at the same time, uh, it's this idea that if you lose yourself, you'll attain nirvana, and kind of everything is this really God. There's also the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are uh, what many call Christians, but they do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Instead, Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is God's first created being. That, that, that God created Jesus in his exact representation, his exact image, but that Jesus wasn't around forever. See, but I also believe that's wrong. See, Jesus, before time began, was there with the Father, and the Holy Spirit was there along with them. And so this is why we really hold the doctrine of the Trinity close to our our hearts. If you ever get baptized, you'll actually get baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit because Jesus says to go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we believe in a triune God who is one God, but also three persons. So we've just learned this like really complicated theological concept. How does it apply to you? Why does this matter for you? and your faith journey, where, where you're walking. You know why? It's because the Trinity has, invites you into relationship with him. Think about that for a moment. The Father has been loving the Son and adoring the Son for eternity past. So if you can think back, like the, the biggest number that you can think of, go back even further than that uh, since, since forever, Eternity passed, and the Father has been loving and growing and, and, and uh, having a deep, uh, intimate relationship with the Son. And they do this through the Holy Spirit. He kind of mediates the love. So imagine someone who has experienced and known all of that love coming up to you and saying, Do you want some? Do you want to experience some of the love I've known and I've had for all eternity? That's what God does for us. He says, come, come and be in relationship with me. Now, like those other religions, you're not going to lose yourself. You're not going to become God. You're not going to become part of me in that way. You're still a person, and I'm still God. So you don't lose your identity when you come to Christ. You find your identity in its fullness, in who you are created to be, because finally you're in relationship with God. See, we can have this relationship with God. We can enter into this wonderful relationship because of the Son. We're talking about the Son of God today because Jesus came. 
Our first point is that God is a trinity. This is our first truth. But our second truth is that Jesus is God's chosen one. Jesus is uh, the Son of God. So uh, in the Old, Old Testament, in the scriptures, we see lots of references to the Messiah. A Messiah means anointed one or chosen one. God said, my anointed one is coming. My chosen one is coming. And in our scripture passage today, we see three kind of witnesses to Jesus being God's chosen one. So another word is attestations. We see uh, three proofs that Jesus is God's chosen one. First, the Old Testament says that Jesus is God's chosen one. The scriptures say this. Now, Jesus approaches John the Baptist. John the Baptist is his cousin. He says, I need to be baptized by you. And, and, and John says, no, no. He tries to deter him, and Jesus wins out because he says, you know, I, I need to be baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, there is not a specific verse in the Old Testament uh, that Jesus is referencing when he says fulfill all righteousness because he's referencing all of them. He's saying, my ministry is really the fulfillment of all those prophecies in the Old Testament. I am starting something here that is significant, that everything has been pointing toward. See, Jesus came to fulfill all the scriptures, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, when, the, when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. It doesn't say he comes down as a dove, but he comes down in the form of a dove, and he rests on Jesus. He lands on Jesus. He uh, kind of anoints him. And this actual happening is prophesied 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet who lived many, many years before Jesus, but he said this. He says this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. See, this man prophesied 700 years before Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come and rest on on Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Jesus is kind of verified by the scriptures themselves. They point to Jesus. Second, a prophet verifies that Jesus is God's chosen one. A prophet. So you have first scriptures, second, a prophet. In the Old Testament, if you so we went back 700 years. Let's go back a couple hundred more. Uh, we're going to go to 900 B.C. Right around then, there was a prophet named Elijah. And uh, Elijah uh, was uh, famous for wearing a garment of hair and a leather belt. Uh, now, you can find this in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. He was, he was one of God's most famous uh, prophets. And in the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, so we're talking the very last book to get written, God says he will send Elijah again. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. So we're in Matthew, we're in the book of Matthew. If you just flip to the, to the left a couple of pages, you'll see Elijah. And you'll see this prophecy that he is coming again. 
And this is fulfilled in a man named John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, it says this, John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. See, John is the second Elijah. He came wearing like these hairy garments and a leather belt. He's supposed to be that figure again. And John says, man, this, this man who is stepping into the waters, he is greater than me. He is God's chosen one. And that's because a man named Elijah, I actually think it was over a thousand years prior to the birth of Jesus, prophesied those words. So both the scriptures and a prophet attest to Jesus as God's chosen one. But you know what? So does God himself. See, third, the father says Jesus is his chosen one. God himself uh, splits the heavens. He opens the heaven, and he declares that Jesus is his only son. Now, uh, if you read in John, it says like it sounded like thunder, that people heard, but maybe they didn't understand. God himself opens the heavens and says, this is my son. And when God speaks, especially when he speaks like audibly, we see that in like uh, giving of the Ten Commandments. We see that uh, we see that here. We see that at the Transfiguration. When when God speaks in this way, we got to pay attention. God opens heaven and says, "This is my son." You know what? God has been silent up until this moment for about four hundred years. So that last book of the Bible I just referenced, the book of Malachi, uh, that uh, prophesied that a second Elijah would come, it was written 400 years before the birth of Jesus. It took a long time for Jesus to show up. And that meant the Father had been quiet, had been silent for 400 years. And so when God speaks for the first time, you should pay attention. And he's saying that I approve of the ministry of my son. This is, this is kind of my coronation for my son. He's been my son for all of eternity. But this is a special moment, a special recognition of him as my son. Maybe some of you have heard of the artist or composer John Cage. Uh, he's, a, he's a famous composer. Uh, in fact, he's been called the most famous composer of the 20th century. Uh, he's no longer with him, but I believe you can find some YouTube videos of him online. Uh, he wrote this piece uh, that is his most famous piece. It's also his most controversial piece. It's called 433, just called 433. And the, the first time it was performed, it was performed by another man, uh, and he walked up to a piano, and he sat at the piano for four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. He didn't play anything, and that was supposed to last three movements. And everyone was just like, mind blown, this is incredible. But he, he, some have dubbed this four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And it was meant to help the audience kind of hear the audience, hear what was going on, the music of the audience. But others have said, no, this is, this is really about silence and how and key and how important silence is. Because without, without pauses, without silence in music, it would be chaos. And see, the Father speaks not after four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. He speaks after 400 years of silence. 
Imagine if uh, John Cage had, had just like played a song at the end of those four four minutes, or the next piece that came after that in the original performance, people would have really listened to that piece. Our father is trying to say something. He's trying to say something very important, saying, this is my son. I am breaking the silence to tell you that he is my chosen one, and I approve of his ministry. Uh, This is his coronation. Uh, He is my son. He is a king. So Jesus' baptism teaches us three truths. First, God is a trinity. Second, Jesus is God's chosen one. And finally, third, it it teaches us that God loves people. God loves people. That's really what this passage is pointing to. See, in his actual baptism, as we look at the actual baptism of Jesus, we see that he, in his baptism, is identifying with people. Jesus identifies with with us, with you, and with me in his baptism. Uh, If we had read earlier in the passage, we would have seen that John the Baptist, so he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. He came preaching a, a, a baptism of repentance for sins. So when he's baptizing people symbolically in the river, he's saying, repent of your sins, repent of your sins. God is coming. Uh, one is coming who is greater than I and will baptize with fire and with the Spirit. But Jesus, he is the one who baptizes with fire and the Spirit, and he doesn't need a baptism of repentance. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. He has never sinned once, never in his whole life, never in all of his existence has he ever sinned. So he's perfect. And notice how, how Jesus comes. He doesn't come like in glamour. He doesn't come glamorously. It says, you know, John kind of gives this great picture of what's coming. Someone will baptize with fire. And it just says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. He came 70 miles, roughly, from Galilee to Jordan. Uh, he, he got close to John. John was famous for eating locusts. Maybe he had bad breath. I don't know. He was probably very dirty. He lived in the wilderness. And Jesus humbles himself and says, I want you to baptize me because I am identifying with people just like you. I'm identifying with dirty people, with smelly people, with sinful people, with people that don't have it all together, with shameful people. I am identifying with my people, the nation of Israel, but ultimately I am identifying with anyone who will put their faith in me. And see, that can be you. If you put your faith in Jesus, Jesus identifies with you at his baptism. Wow. See, Jesus, really, as he's being baptized, he is embracing our shame. He is embracing who we are. He's not saying, I approve of your shame, but he's saying, I, I embrace you. I want to I wash you. I want to make you clean, just like this baptism cleans uh, me of my grime and my dirt. Jesus embraces our shame. Has anyone ever embraced you and your shame? That's not something that happens very often. We don't usually extend that embrace to others. Uh, have you ever been sick, like had the, the cold or a flu, and you have to go do an errand or you have to go to your friend's house or your, your uh, like, uh, in-laws or, or, or a family member's house, and you, and you show up, and the first thing they say is, oh, you're sick, aren't you? You're like, what about the hug? I want a hug here. They say, no, stay away from me, stay away from me. I don't want to catch the cold. I feel like there's someone like that in every family. And as the one who gets sick a lot, it's kind of annoying. 
But Jesus, he doesn't do this. He comes to embrace us in our sickness. He comes to embrace us in our sin, in our disease, saying, I can make you well. I can make you well spiritually. And he made many people well physically. Do you let him embrace you in your shame or do you deny him? Say, God, it's too icky. It's too gross. Or maybe you're not willing to admit that it is icky and that it is gross. Maybe you won't accept Jesus' forgiveness because you're too embarrassed. Let Christ identify with you. Identify with him. You can trust Jesus with every single aspect of your life. Every single moment, even the gross moments, even the, the moments that you're embarrassed of. Jesus identifies with you, but do you identify with Jesus? Our passage actually tells us four different ways that we can identify with Jesus, that we don't reject his baptism, that we put our faith in him, that we trust him. The first one of them is to ask him to deal with your sin. In other words, are you willing to go through that baptism that that John preached of repentance? Are you willing to come to him and say, wash me clean, God. Wash me clean, Jesus. One way you can do this is by not keeping your sin to yourself, by getting like an accountability partner, someone that you can be open and honest with about anything, and they can speak the gospel into your life. They can speak grace, reminding you that you're forgiven. Do that. Get, a, get an accountability partner. Invite a friend. Tell, tell your friend what you're going through. Invite healing. Another way you can identify with Jesus is that when you witness his power, pause, and worship. When you witness his power, pause, and worship. This really comes uh, from the crowd. So we don't get any reaction from the crowd except for what we see in the rest of the book of Matthew. And what we see there is that people are amazed by Jesus. They want to be his friend. They want things from Jesus, but they don't really pause and just worship him very often. And one way we can identify with Christ is that when God works in your life, you pause and you worship him. And coming to a church service is actually a great way to pause and worship Jesus. Third way, obey him even when you don't understand. We see this in John the Baptist, who was willing to obey Jesus even though he didn't agree with Jesus, even though he didn't uh, understand Sometimes we go through uh, things that we don't understand. God, why did you put me in this situation? Trust him. Obey him. And finally, the fourth way you can identify with Jesus is to get baptized. To follow Jesus into the baptismal waters. When you get baptized as a profession of faith, you're saying, I identify with Jesus, that he's my Lord. He's my Savior. I'm giving him every aspect of my life. I want him to wash every aspect of my life of me. And I know that my eternity is secure in him. This is a great way to identify with Christ. If you have not already done so, I encourage you to. Ultimately, the baptism of Jesus tells us one central truth. It does tell us God is a trinity, that Jesus is God's chosen one, and that God loves people. But ultimately, it tells us this. It tells us that Jesus is the God who got into the water with us. Jesus is the God who got into the water with us. See, Jesus' water baptism also points to something else. It points to his death. And his resurrection. See, in the, in the ancient world, water baptism was kind of like a bath. It was a symbol of ritual purification. 
But water itself was much more significant than that. It was very dark. It was confusing. It was the unknown. It symbolized death. And see, as Jesus steps into the water, he's saying, I am willing to die for you. If you, if you stay underwater, you will drown. Jesus is saying, I am willing to experience death so that you don't have to experience the sting like I did. Jesus is not only identifying with us, he's willing to die for us. And notice the results of Jesus' baptism. When Jesus comes back out of the water, the, the heavens part. And the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, read it in its entirety, you can actually see kind of parallels between the beginning of Matthew and the end. Because at the end of Matthew... Jesus goes through a, simple, a similar coronation where he's kind of recognized. In fact, he gets a crown of thorns placed on his head. And then he goes to the cross, bearing the sins of the world, and he dies. And you know what happens when he dies? The temple curtain, which was a symbol of separation between God and people, it's torn from top to bottom. See, Jesus says, I am willing to experience death for you so that I might tear a hole in heaven, so that you might know God. Wow. This is what Jesus does for us. He opens up access to God himself who is so holy and so pure. If we ever stood in his presence, we would die. Jesus says, I will tear that hole in heaven for you. So that one day when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, God will say, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus is the God who got into the water with us. When I was about seven years old, I was at a party. I was at a party for my cousin. Uh, they had a rectangle pool. I remember it was blue. It was like evening time. It was beautiful. Uh, it was an in-ground pool. And my brothers had already jumped in and were beginning to play. They were swimming around. And I didn't know how to swim. I had no idea, but I wanted to get into the water with my brothers. And so on this rectangle pool, there were steps going down like the side of the pool where you could hold on to the side. I got down into the pool on the steps. I got down to the last step. And I saw my brothers like jumping and splashing around and I wanted to join them. And so I stepped off the last step. And I could not touch the bottom. And I began to just like freak out, to, to be scared, to uh, flail my arms. And that's when my older brother Timothy grabbed his arms around me and pulled me out of the pool. See, you and I, we are born in the deep end. We are born in our own sin. And we have an older brother who has come, his name is Jesus Christ, and he wants to pull you out of the deep end. And if you have not been pulled from the deep end, I encourage you, let tonight be the night that you put your faith in Christ Jesus, because he is a big brother that loves us. Jesus is the God who got into the water with us. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for what you did for us on the cross, what you did through your son.
that you substituted yourself for us? Would you pull every single one of these people out of the water? And would they live a life that invites others to resurrection life? In Jesus' name, amen.